This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a new way to think about IFR training. And we're going to give you some self-briefing tips for regulatory compliance. Also, Cessna is coming along on the Sky Courier. Folks looking to get hired in the airline business, look for United. Finally, the FAA releases guidance for pilots who have had COVID. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk today? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. So, David, you got to tell us you're you're in a box this week. Where where are you? You're off-site. I am off-site, Ian. I'm watching some golfers play golf here in uh, beautiful Georgia. And I can't say exactly where I am, but everything is green. Oh, it's clandestine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just honored to be here. You know, a lot of the podcast listeners know that I was a photo editor and a photographer in my prior life before coming to AOPA. And so I'm able to come and do some photo editing here in Augusta and uh, here in April. And to, to further that a little bit, I hope that we can find some golfers that might be able to come on our show that maybe they're pilots and golfers. So we'll see if that works out. Very cool. <laughs> okay. By the way, oh, our guest this week, Neil Singer. And Neil's a, uh, a mentor pilot, which is somebody we haven't talked to in the past. This is a really cool thing. If, if you're not familiar with this world, this is for folks who buy jets to fly around themselves, you know, CJs and Phenoms and things like that. Many times, if it's their first jet, they have to have a pilot go with them, somebody who's experienced, an instructor. And so Neil is one of those guys, and he talks about what it's like to learn to fly a jet on your own, uh, a bit about his background, and and maybe if you have aspirations to do it, the skills that you need. And Ian, I want to thank you for doing the heavy lifting on that and tracking Neil down and, and giving us a 411 on how you can be a mentor pilot. Okay, cool. So that'll be in a few minutes. In the meantime, let's talk about the news. This is a device that I guess is actually been around the block for a few years, but is just, I think, coming into its own. Well, David, you're in the middle of instrument training. You know the torture device that is Foggles yes. uh, or a hood or whatever you want to call it. 
And a National Guard pilot and engineer has come up with something that he thinks does the job a little better. So it's called the Icarus. And Ian, you told me off the show a little while ago that you actually heard about this around 2015 when it first came out. This is a real interesting device. The whole point is you can don this device before you take off. And it's a clear face shield that you look through. And it sort of helps you get trained for instrument conditions. It has a, an electronic film on the front of it that can be dimmed or make, made more opaque so that it trains folks like me. And also we can talk about the Kobe Bryant crash, you know, that this might help avoid something like that. But it, it gets you ready to be in those instrument conditions. And I, th I think it's pretty cool. It's a great idea. Yeah, this is very cool. So the, you know, the idea is that it, instrument training, like a lot of training, it, it, it's a little... I don't know. It, it doesn't quite simulate reality. You know, it's like the, you know, you've had this experience. The instructor says, okay, you've taken off, put on the hood. Okay, they take the controls, you put on the hood, you get, you steady yourself, then they give you back the airplane, you know. You know it's coming. It's not a surprise. You know it's coming. That's right. Exactly. Same thing. They're like, you hit uh, 300 feet on the approach and they're like, okay, you broke out, take off the hood. And you quickly like grab them off and look out. And it's, it's this weird sort of, you know, it's, it's training. It's, uh, you know, you go from sort of reality to, to make believe, I guess, a little bit. And so with this device, it's really cool because you, like you said, you wear it, you put it on before you fly and anytime really, and this goes for, v, you know, VFR training as well. Anytime the instructor can just zoop, zap this thing on and all of a sudden you're blind and you have to immediately transition to the gauges. And that's, that's a really important skill to learn. The transition to the gauges was what the NTSB basically was talking about. Uh, the, you know, the pilot had trouble with that, and a lot of us do, Ian. And that this device, I think, would would key you up to get jump started on looking at that at artificial horizon, the attitude indicator, because you got to be on it. As you know, you're an instrument pilot, you're a, an instructor. I'm a student. When I make my mistakes, it's because I'm like looking at other other instruments. I'm not concentrating. I need to be on that main instrument and use everything else as supporting instruments. Yep, yep. And it's a different way of thinking, of course. So, you know, this thing is a little pricey now. The fixed wing version, I think, is a thousand bucks. He's also made a helicopter version. We we mentioned he's a National Guard helicopter pilot. That one's fifteen hundred bucks. I, I think this will come down in price, hopefully. As, as people adopt it, but kudos to him. I think it's a it's a cool idea and definitely something worth checking out. The Icarus, and we'll have to keep our eye on that. You know, maybe flight schools would buy it and have it and maybe rent it out for 10 or 20 bucks, you know, a session or something like that. Maybe that's the way to go. Yeah, good idea. All right, so moving on to something else kind of related to new technology, and that is this idea of self-briefings. So, David, when you learn to fly, when I learn to fly, most of it was, you know, when you got a pre-flight briefing, it was you called flight service. You know, you picked up the phone, you called 1-800-WX-BRIEF, you sat there while the, you know, the briefer sort of regurgitated out all the info that was on their screen, and then you went flying. And of course, we live in a different world now, and the FAA has put out an advisory circular that, that really acknowledges this new world that we all fly in. Well, you know, you also used to be able to walk into a flight service facility, yes. too. Yeah, yes, I did then. that. I've, I've done that. Yeah, yep. but, yep. Um, but you're right, Ian, and the thing is, you know, let's face it. We're, we don't have to visualize this in our head anymore like we used to. We've got all these tools. We've got these graphic maps. We've got great tools and resources at our fingertips. But do we know how to do a compliant briefing? That's the key. We need to be compliant with the key, which is FAR 91.103, which I'm sure you know well as an instructor. And that's the catch-all. 
Each pilot in command shall, before beginning a flight, become familiar with all available information. So we got to do it in order. We need to know what's coming in, where to go, where not to go, everything like that. Yep, that's right. So, you know, when you called WX Brief, they took care of that. Your name's on the tape. You're covered legally, right? If not getting necessarily a complete picture of the information, because like you said, you, you didn't have graphic information to go with it. So with this advisory circular, the FAA is saying, okay, well, here's all these other sources that you could potentially look at. Now, I will say, when you read it, it it's many times there are caveats in this AC that are like, well, here's some places for information. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list or don't be limited to this or whatever. And so I, I still would read that and be a little bit cautious about just saying, oh, well, if I look at Aviation Weather Center on National Weather Service website, that I'm all set. You know, it's like, I still think if, you're, if your goal here is, you know, CYA, it's like, mm, it probably still, probably still worth it to call or get a, uh, an official briefing from Lidos. Yeah, because the, the main disadvantage to doing a self-briefing is that you're not going through it in order sometimes. Uh, I do. I use, uh, I'm going to be honest with our podcast listeners. I use uh, ForeFlight a lot, so I'm very familiar with that. And I use that app, and, and that's structured pretty well. I, I like the way that goes, and it's a good flow for me. Some other people might prefer Garmin. They might prefer, like you said, to go into the FAA website you know, it, itself or the National Weather Service, but a variety of ways. And I start out by looking at the Weather Channel, you know, for the bigger picture. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, you can get sidetracked. What if someone's, you know, you're at home, you're getting a pre-flight briefing, you're trying to do this, and then your family is asking you questions. I mean, everyone's at home because of COVID and that kind of thing. You just need to make sure you've hit all these important resources, TFRs included, and convective weather, you know, and got to know everything uh, about where you're landing too. And I, as I'm learning through my instrument studies, that's even more important. There's a lot more details involved with that. Yes, that's right. So it's AC 9192. And actually, you make a great point. There is a checklist at the end of that, that basically you could print out for every flight and say, okay, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. So that would really help. But yeah, check that out if you want. I will say what it's great for is a it's an awesome list of resources, if nothing else. Uh, for both private and, and public sources of, of weather. Yep, that's good. Well, speaking of other sources, we're going to move on to what might be a pretty interesting source for for cargo operations and also some passenger operations mm -hmm. with Cessna's new Sky Courier. It's on track to be delivered later this year. Yeah, this is a cool airplane if you like, you know, if you're into that sort of freight world, you know, FedEx has been using caravans as their feeders for years and years and years. Biggest customer of caravans, I think. And, you know, they just need a little more capability. Two engines is really helpful. So Cessna has developed this Sky Courier to hold, I think it's 6,000 pounds or 19 seats. And they've been working on this for a while. And yeah, it's looking like maybe they'll have it done by the end of the year. Yeah, so uh, Textron put a little update out and we got the latest information on that. You're right on, on track in with the, the, with the stats that you quoted. And Cessna thinks that this is really going to do a lot for, you know, those short hop situations with passengers. And also, as you mentioned, for cargo, they've already completed more than 700 hours of, of uh, flight tests. And it remains on track for delivery later this year. I think that's that's ambitious. Yes. You know, with the COVID slowdowns and other things and we've had. We've had staff resource slowdowns at Textron and, and, and other air, airplane manufacturers as well. But that's an interesting airplane. $5.5 million is the expected 
production price for you know to mm-hmm. buy one and FedEx ordered 50 and has 50 more on reserve. Yeah, I will say that price gosh, it's like this is a <laughs> you got to think about the world of relative that we live in now, right? 5.5 million for uh twin turboprop. That's pretty darn good. So, yeah, I I, I think they've they've kept the price down there, which is important for this group. They're flying with Pratt & Whitney Canada PT6 65 SC engines. So, yeah, that's looking good with a known, you know, known manufacturer there. I will say one thing that's very cool about this is if you are a new pi- new commercial pilot in this world, so a lot of folks have flown those caravans, you know, for FedEx feeders. And, yeah. and one hesitation, I think, for people always has been, well, you're getting turbine time, that really critical turbine time, but you're getting single-engine turbine time. Oh, right. With this, flying that Sky Courier, it's like you're going to start being able to rack up multi-turbine time early in the career, which is really important. So that's that's very cool. So if you're getting that turbine time, one place you could go is United. And they just had a big announcement this week about the future of pilot hiring for the airline. Yeah, United has made a commitment, Ian, to look to women and people of color as a higher 10,000 more pilots in the next few years. And this is significant. They're looking to train 5,000 pilots by 2030, with half of them to be you know, from, from diverse populations. And that's significant because we're looking at a little bit more leisure travel and a return to normalcy. So that pilot shortage is still here. And that's just what some of our specialists have been telling us for the past few months. Yeah, yeah, it's coming back. So they're saying they're going to hire more this year, more pilots. And then, yeah, like you said, train. I think the the story saying they're going to hire 10,000, but this United Academy, you know, they bought Westwind down there in Phoenix. They want to train 5,000 themselves. And like you said, half of those being women and people of color. This is a really interesting story. I, you know, people were talking about it on Facebook today, and, I, you know, the range of, of opinions, as you might expect. One thing, though, that I didn't realize is that United has gone through with the government before suits from like the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission about lack of hiring of women and people of color. And so they they have a bit of a complex past with this. Apparently, there were some agreements they didn't follow. They had to pay fines for that and, and commit to more hiring. And so for them to come out in front of this and say that they're committed to it, I think it's pretty significant. It is, and United is not the only airline that is looking to make some hires, Ian. We're seeing some other movements in some of the smaller airlines as well. We're looking at you know, Frontier. We're looking at a lot of different options here. And just like we've been saying for the past few months, the, the career hiring specialists that we've had on Hangar Talk have indicated that they are bullish on the flight on the, based on the flight industry. So we're looking at a return to travel, and it's just starting to happen now. We're starting to gear up for that. And there's still a shortage. I mean, let's face it. We're in a severe shortage ahead of time. We're just in a little bit less of a shortage right now. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a great story. So not only has hiring come back, but, you know, some people really, uh, some airlines, United in particular in this case, you know, putting it out there that, that staking a claim that they want to increase the ranks of women and minorities, which is uh, really significant and and tease up a little bit, I should say piggybacks a little bit on what, uh, you know, Jenny Beatty was saying on our last show. Yeah, Captain Jenny Beatty said that there does need to be some changes made in the, I guess, in the corporate, you know, environment for commercial airlines. And she's seen some of that. And 
but she's also seen the other side of it where there, you know, where there is some discrimination, some folks are held back, that kind of thing. But she is an advocate to get more folks out there and, and really to keep an eye on gender bias and just, you know, aviation really, Ian, needs to be all welcoming. We need to increase the pilot population however we can. And that's a given. And AOPA has, has stood by that for a while. That's why we have our, our high school symposium. That's why we have our high school curriculum. Yeah. So we want to invite more people into the aviation industry. And by doing that, we need to make more people aware of that there are jobs in the aviation community that they could apply for and pursue. So I think it's a good thing. And Captain Beatty was on mark uh, with us last week. And also, hey, why don't we celebrate one million downloads on Hangar Talk yeah. because she helped yeah. drive us over the finish line That's to, right. to That's 1 right. million downloads. So we want to thank all of our, our Hangar Talk podcast listeners for that as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, hey, moving on, uh, last story of the week is about COVID. Now, you know, we have promised in past shows that we're going to stop talking about it, but stuff keeps happening. So just one story on it this week, and that is if you have had COVID, this is an important thing to know, and that is that the FAA has put out guidance to medical examiners detailing what will happen when you go for your medical and and what's going to happen with your eligibility based on how your COVID experience was. For pilots and for air traffic controllers, mm. we should make, make that point yeah. clear. So I'm going to read a little bit of this because Alyssa Cobb wrote the story and she has the details down. But this is really important, as you said, Ian. An AME can, and the emphasis is on can, C-A-N, issue a medical certificate when the person who had a confirmed case of COVID-19 has fully recovered. And if they were asymptomatic or had a mild infection or had a prolonged infection but were not hospitalized, or if they were hospitalized but did not require intensive care, which is another sticking point. Yes. Yep. So that's so basically if you had it and were asymptomatic or mild, or even if you were hospitalized, but weren't in the ICU, that's right, they can issue it. Now they're not, you know, there are caveats to that always. And we'll that we'll talk with the, about the first one. And that's the hospitalization. So if you were hospitalized, but not in the ICU, the AME is going to send documents. So they're going to require that you bring them and then you're going to send them to the FAA. And of course, we know things can happen when those documents get to the FAA. So it's not necessarily a given in that case. And it could take a while, too, because sometimes they are backed up. So folks who, who are professional pilots, you know, be wary of this and, and have some advanced planning. But the key to me, and this is something that I was not aware of, but, it, but it's really important, is that AMEs must defer applications for individuals who were in intensive care or are experiencing ongoing residual signs and or symptoms of confirmed COVID-19. And that's a very key sentence right there. Got to be real wary of that. Yeah, it's very important. So as we know, there are lots of ongoing and long-term residual symptoms and signs. So if you have those and your medical is coming up, the AME will defer you. I would say call AOPA's medical line and get some advice on exactly what to do there and, and how to handle that situation before you go to the medical. That's important. You know, they list this sort of may include but not limited to thing. And basically, it's anything. You know, if you've had something related to COVID and still have it, or if you were in the ICU a year ago and have, and have recovered, you know, the AME will not be able to give you a medical in the office. 
But Ian, I got a question for you. If you're asymptomatic and you didn't know that you had it and you didn't get tested because let's face it, you didn't feel like you needed to get tested, then how would you even know if you had COVID-19? This is a real catch-22. Uh, yeah, I guess you wouldn't. I mean, I suppose if you're asymptomatic, you meet it because, you know, when you you remember on the forum, it's like, you know, have do you have this feeling? Have you taken this med? Whatever. And it's like, no, you know, you didn't know. So I suppose, yeah, you're right. And don't forget, you still have a 48-hour waiting period after you get your vaccine. So if, mm-hmm. you're, if you're doing the Pfizer Biotech or the Moderna vaccines, those are two vaccine shots. And so it's two days waiting for each vaccine shot that you get. Yeah, that's important. Absolutely. So yeah, make sure you go on AOPA.org, read that story. If you've had COVID, that's very important. You want to make sure that you get that right. That's going to impact a lot of stuff with your medical, obviously, or better yet, call AOPA, call the medical folks at AOPA and say, hey, I had COVID. I don't know what to do. I'm going out for my medical. Help me and they will help you through that process. Sounds good. Speaking of help, why don't you bring on our, our guest, bring on uh, Neil Singer, who's helping a lot of people learn how to be turbine pilots. Neil, yeah, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so in the intro, I, you know, I mentioned you're a mentor pilot, but a lot of people probably don't know what that is. So, so give us the lowdown on what exactly a mentor pilot does. Well, traditionally, mentoring is thought of as the period of time after someone is type rated in a jet, but has to complete some period of supervised operating experience. The FAA, for the first type rating received in a sim, with limited exceptions, but usually will require this period of of, uh, SOE. Insurance is usually the more strict uh, requirement, though. They'll typically require even more than the 25 hours the FAA requires. So that's traditionally what mentoring is thought of, but it really encompasses a lot more than that. A lot of people like to do what I call bookend mentoring, which is before they go in the sim, they'll do some mentoring as well. You know, your first session in the sim, you're flying approaches to minimums. And if you've never seen the airplane before, it can literally take 45 minutes to get the engine started and taxi the airplane I've seen, you know, for somebody's first session in a light jet. Sim. Sure, I'm sure, so you're yeah. wasting almost half of your sim block just trying to get to the runway, right? So mm-hmm. it's great if people can do some mentoring before they go. And then as well, a lot of people for various reasons, logistics, timing is tends to be one of one of the main ones, don't get their type rating in the simulator, look at their type rating in the airplane. So uh, mentoring can also encompass some of that in, in aircraft training, ultimately culminating in the in the type rating and, and often a combination of, of some of those uh, disparate elements. And then there's an ongoing training as well. You know, every pilot of a turbine aircraft now for a decade, whatever the size is, even a small single pilot jet requires an annual proficiency check. So there is a recurrent training requirement and, and mentoring can meet that requirement in different ways. So I'm backing up a little bit to the sim, you know, I know there's, there's a debate, well, historic debate, maybe it's sort of settled by now, but about the value of sim training versus training in the airplane. But is it that with insurance companies these days and, and just the professionalism of the sim training now that most people are doing 
pretty much the bulk of the training in the sim and then just sort of a finish up in the airplane or some people going airplane entirely? Well, uh, two questions there. So first, I wouldn't say it's settled. I don't think it'll ever be settled. This is like rich of peak, lean of peak. You know, people will be arguing (laughs) this for 50 years. So it's not settled. It's never going to be settled. The second part of the question, yes, insurance has absolutely been driving over just the last three, four years, much more of a requirement for simulator training. Typically, there's always been a requirement for some component uh, to be done in the sim, but maybe five, 10 years ago, it would be fairly easy to get insurance approval to do your initial training in the aircraft, get type rated in the aircraft. And then within some defined period of time, three months, maybe go do a simulator based recurrent. And that's a great mix to my mind. You know, you're getting the best of both worlds there. You know, there's some things the sim just doesn't do well, anything predicated on visuals, you know, so landing, circling approaches are just, they're just not as great in the sim as they can be trained in the airplane, but there's a ton that the sim can do that the airplane can't do at all, or that the sim can do much better, much more safely, right? So I think, you know, perfect training regime, I think incorporates both of them. For the larger single pilot jets, the the kind of rough rule of thumb right now is anything with a hull value over $5 million, the insurance company is really tightening up the requirements. And so you are now seeing a mandatory initial SIM training, often mandatory annual SIM training, whereas five years ago, maybe you could alternate one year in the SIM, one year in the aircraft and go back and forth. So you're, you're seeing that particularly, again, for the, the you know, Phenom 300, CJ3 size light jets, the, the more expensive hulls. Yeah. And so this, this mentor world, I mean, it, it sounds like most of the focus, I mean, there's very few of you who, who do this very specialized training. And so most of you focus, is, is the goal, the sort of owner operator, somebody who buys their own jet and eventually wants to fly it single pilot. I mean, that's the type of airframe you're focusing on primarily. Absolutely. I mean, that's really the majority. Uh, Very occasionally I'll work with a flight department, corporate flight department, you know, just uh, first one that comes to mind, they'd been flying a Conquest turboprop for years and they bought a CJ4. So they're only full-time pilot, very experienced pilot, but really no jet time. So he went to flight safety and I can't remember what the insurance required, maybe 25 hours, maybe 50 hours. But he prudently said, you know, this is my first jet. I'd like to really just have an experienced mentor in the right seat with me until I really feel comfortable. But that's the minority. The vast majority is, as you say, the owner pilot. In terms of the profile of the owner pilot, it's really all across the board. I've worked with many pilots who are coming directly from an SR-22, a Cirrus. And this is not only their first jet. It's their first turbine. It's their first multi-engine aircraft. But I've worked with just as many people who are coming up from um, a a TBM, Twin Commander. I've worked with several people who used to fly those, King Airs. So, you know, there is no one typical profile. It it really is a broad spectrum. I'm curious. The, you know, I mean, we think just conceptually going from a Cirrus to, you know, a multi-jet is like, it sounds crazy, the the jump that you're talking there. I mean, in, in the traditional path, you know, I don't know if it ever was traditional, but we thought of, you know, it's like single piston, multi-piston, you know, multi-turbine and then jet. It's like, do you find a, a skill difference among those pilots? I mean, are the ones who have sort of stepped up piece by piece more prepared for that turbine jet world, the, the, the twin jet? Or is it, you know, is it like, well, the person who went in the Cirrus is, has advanced systems from day one and is able to make that transition? Yeah, that's a great question. 
you know, as a rule, I would say, yes, someone who has taken more incremental steps tends to be slightly more prepared. But that's really just as a rule. You know, what, what I found over 20 years of, of instruction, 20 plus years, is that everything falls on the bell curve, right, somewhere. And, you know, what's different is how tight the bell curve is, how wide the distribution is. But there's exceptions to everything, uh, you know, and I'll give you an example. I worked with the pilot who came directly from an SR-22 into a Phenom 100. And he had very low time, 400, 500 hours. So he very prudently hired a full-time salaried pilot to fly with him indefinitely. Uh, and he ended up, as far as I know, always having a salaried pilot on staff. I haven't talked to him in some time, but I don't think he ever got rid of having a salaried pilot. So, you know, he recognized that for safety's reasons, you know, trying to go into flying single pilot in a in a uh, fairly high performance uh, demanding uh, jet like like the Phenom wasn't maybe the best idea. So here's the here's the punchline: no Garmin time. He was flying an Avidyne. Uh, uh, Cirrus, so no Garmin cockpit time, you know, familiar with the 430s that were common at the time, but very intelligent, very dedicated to studying, and he really progressed great. You know, he had to repeat things as you might expect, but, you know, he was really kind of where I would hope for in a best case for an owner-pilot transitioning. The punchline is his mentor was a former military pilot for a a non-U.S. Air Force, but a former military pilot and had a lot of turbine time, jet time, turboprop time, but no glass cockpit time. All of the turbines he'd been flying were all traditional round dials. I think C-130 was the last plane he flew, uh, you know, an older variant. And his mentor, his quote unquote mentor, ended up not completing the training, ended up really not being able to make it through. He just couldn't wrap his head around the automation, the glass cockpit, the autopilot. And so, you know, I always use that story when people ask me, hey, how long am I going to need for my initial training? You know, when am I going to be ready? And I say, you know, there's just no way to predict because there's so many variables. I mean, there's certainly things I can use as a proxy. If you have some jet time, that's fantastic. If you have Garmin time, because, you know, pretty much all of the, the Cessna and Embraer products you're flying now are, are Garmin flight decks, or certainly all the production in production, that's, that's a huge help, right? But there's some, you know, indefinable elements, too, that, that you just can't see until you see them. Yeah, yeah, right. So it sounds like if, if I'm a, you know, somebody listening has, you know, won the lottery or done a tech startup or something like that, and they're flying a 172 now and, you know, with hopes of, of buying a jet soon, it sounds like really hammering in on the technology, on the Garmin, um, even in a light platform can be really helpful for the transition. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a story going around. It, it might be apocryphal. It might be true. I'm not sure. But there's a story going around that uh, 50% of the first Eclipse Mustang and and um, and maybe even to the Phenom 100 type ratings, the failures were because of failure to master the automation on the initial type rating. You know, so when when they were really spinning up the uh, the, the training, particularly for the Mustang and the Eclipse, may or may not be true, but I, I I believe it. You know, particularly if you don't have experience with a glass cockpit at all, which is less common because, as you say now, you know, flight schools of 172s have G1000s in them. But that's not always the case. You know, there's a flight school near me where the vast majority of the airplanes are still six packs. So it's certainly possible. So, yeah, the the technology, the automation is a big part of it, but it's not the only part. You know, I, I would much rather see someone with rock solid instrument skills, really good flight discipline 
you know, maybe some diverse flying experience, you know, outside just their, their local 50 nautical mile ring. Uh, I'd rather see someone like that with a willingness to learn the technology than someone who maybe knows the technology, but, but doesn't have some of those other elements. Hmm. So you, you kind of touched on this, but what deficiencies do you typically see? I mean, it sounds like, you know, the panel and being able to master the automation, but then maybe as well, people who, uh, you know, I know they say this even in, you know, airline training, it's like just basic instrument skills, you know, people get rusty and they don't really, you know, study up before the transition and, and get proficient and that shows. Absolutely. Yeah. The basic instrument skills is one of the big one. I mean, as I mentioned before, your first sim session, you're flying an approach down to minimums. And what, what I do see is a lot of pilots at all levels, uh, once you're talking about a TAA, okay, once you're talking about a TAA up to a jet, I do see a lot of pilots rely too much on the automation. And I mean, I'm a big proponent of mastering automation and using it as a safety tool. And it's a really key safety tool. It's another pilot for, for all intents and purposes. But what I do see is pilots leaning on it and it results in atrophying hand flying skills. Uh, so there's no cure for that other than getting out and doing it, <laughs> making yourself fly ILS approaches down to 200 feet under a view limiting device with a safety pilot or instructor. So that would be one of the first things is that just the basic stick and rudder instrument skills often atrophy if they're not used. And a lot of pilots take the path of least resistance and they put the autopilot on and they use the autopilot down to minimums and click it off and land. And it's an understandable human tendency, but yeah, that's not going to serve well, you know, during an initial training course. So certainly that as well, I would say beyond the, the stick and rudder part of instrument skills, just a real understanding of instrument skills, right? So when's the last time a lot of pilots have flown an entry into a hold and had to calculate what, what their, their entry is going to be? You know, when's the last time someone did a full approach with a procedure turn, non-precision approach and some step downs? So those are all things you're going to have to do. You know, every type rating uh, requires two non-precision approaches. So if all you've done are vectored LPVs over your last couple of <laughs> years, that, that's yeah. maybe something to look into as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I, I, I'm surprised. I mean, you mentioned the hand flying aspect, and it's like, especially because the profile of a lot of these jets is like, you know, rotate, autopilot's on, and it's off, you know, and it's on until the final approach fix or whatever the case may be for the jet. So surprising to hear you say that the hand flying is important, but I guess that is tested during the training. Yeah, half of the approaches have to be hand flown. And then, of course, all the air work is hand flown. So you have to do three stalls, deep turns, unusual attitude recoveries. And then, you know, some of the more challenging elements, uh, engine failure right around V1, uh, essentially right before rotation in a jet, that can't be done on the autopilot, right? That has to yeah. be, be flown manually. And, and, you know, that's a particularly demanding maneuver. You're having to control the airplane in all three axes. You need precise rudder control, not too much, not too little. You need precise bank control. You need precise pitch attitude. You know, a difference of a couple degrees pitch could be the difference between climbing, stalling, not climbing. So, you know, it's, it's a really demanding exercise in hand flying the airplane. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how you structure your operating experience. Um, you know, I mean, people might be familiar with IOE that airlines use where it's like you fly the line and their normal profiles and it's to sort of get in the rhythm of what that life is like. But do you kind of do it like that? I mean, do you say, okay, you know, new jet owner, how are you going to be using this thing? You know, let's, let's go do that. Let's go use it in the real world. Or do you set up scenarios purposefully to, to push them into hot and high or weather or that sort of thing? Uh, so both, 
you know, I think a, a perfect SOE experience is a mix of both of those. So I'm always going to start by, if I haven't yet, becoming familiar with their operating profile and try to understand what they're doing. Because clearly, if somebody purchased their aircraft to travel to meetings in New York City once a week, then I want them to be incredibly comfortable in and out of Teterboro, White Plains, and, and mm-hmm. you know, we're going to do that as much as we need to because that's you know, that's almost its own type rating <laughs> to fly in and yeah, out of some of those absolutely. airplanes in a jet. Yeah. But at the same time, I just recently wrote an, an article for Iopa Turban where I say one of the great things about jets is how much it expands your flying horizon. And, you know, the, the funny story you hear from owners all the time is, well, I, I took out the notebook and the pencil and I figured out, you know, I flew 150 hours in my Cirrus last year. So, you know, my Mustang's going to fly 56% faster. So I'm going to fly 121 hours this year. But hey, you know what? I flew 175 because I realized I can go more places. So yeah. I'm actually flying more because I'm doing more things. So you know, you hear that story over and over again that people think they'll be flying less hours per year, but they don't understand how much more they're going to want to do. Yeah. So I try to get in front of that to some extent. You know. So uh, yes, to the second part of the question, that is absolutely an important important point. So finding challenging airports, trying to get an idea of okay, maybe you haven't been operating your previous airplane in this manner because maybe it wasn't suitable. You know, maybe you don't want to take a Cirrus into the mountains of ski country because you know, well, it's tech technically no nice, but maybe it's not the, the most appropriate no nice airplane. Well, that's really going to open up uh, that w- window to you a lot. So let's make sure you're comfortable with that. If you're an avid skier, you know, try to look ahead where you think you're going to be using this airplane in a year or two. You know, as much as the pilot is willing to do, if someone is willing to try to do some international trips, I think that's a great thing to do. It becomes so much easier in a jet, you know, so much more of the, the world is accessible in a reasonable amount of flight time. So it's a combination of trying to figure out what their typical use case is going to be, but also making sure we push beyond that, making sure we do check some critical boxes. You know, even if someone's never going to go into Teterboro in their mind, I still like to make sure we go into some really busy airspace a few times. Even if somebody thinks they're only going to go to 9,000 foot class Charlie and Bravo runways, I still like to try to take them into something a little bit shorter, non-towered, you know, so I think it's important to make sure you've covered all possible bases to some extent, but at the same time, focusing most on what they're going to use the blame most for. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about your life. I mean, you know, how does a, how does an instructor get to where you are? I guess let's, let's start there. (laughs) Well, I wish I had an easy formula for that. Uh, It's, it's kind of a roundabout route in my case. I guess the the key part is you have to love instructing, of course, for a lot of pilots being a CFI is merely a stepping stone to career with the airlines, right? Well, I had a, a flying friend of mine joke that I was the only pilot he knew who flew for the regional airlines to build time to become a flight instructor, because that was in part how I viewed uh, the time I spent. I flew for a regional airline for four years, almost a couple decades ago now. And, and that was a big part of my impetus to do that was recognizing, hey, if I want to be a really well-rounded pilot, then the chance to fly some transport category turboprops, transport category regional jets in a disciplined environment. This is for the largest regional airline uh, in the world at the time. I don't know if they still are or not. But, uh, you know, in that really disciplined environment with great training was an invaluable experience for me. So, you know, that's something that that absolutely teed me up to be doing what I am, uh, what I am now. But from that, you know, I guess uh, the advice I would give people is, is you just have to be patient. From the time I left the regional airline, to 
the time I started flying uh, a, a light jet, in this case, a CJ2, Citation CJ2, in, in a mentoring capacity, was four years. Oh, wow. So, you know, for those four years, I was doing a lot of Cirrus instruction, Bonanza, uh, at the time, Lancer, then Columbia, before Cessna, Textron bought them. So I was, you know, focusing on high-performance single-engine airplanes, recognizing that's going to be the um, that's going to be the field from which these light jet pilots grow, and and so then that morphed into the the Textron, Cessna, and Ember uh, products I mentor in now. So was it sort of a you know who you know situation? You had taught somebody in a Cirrus, and they ended up yes. buying a jet and <laughs> gave you a call and said, yes. "Hey, I need help." Absolutely, it's it's a numbers game, really, is what it comes down to. Yeah, it's a numbers game. One of my Cirrus clients purchased a jet and, you know, we had a great relationship. We'd been flying together at that point for four or five years. And he said, well, you know, if you're willing to do this, I, I don't want to fly this with anybody other than you. But again, that's where the regional airline experience came into play. You know, if I hadn't been flying a regional jet for, for a few years and, and a, a turboprop for a few years before that, uh, I, I sh- certainly wouldn't have felt comfortable saying, yeah, I can teach you how to fly this CJ. Um, but having that background, you know, having the pieces in place helped. And so that's how it all grew out of that. So same thing with the Mustang. I had a Cirrus client say, look, hey, I'm thinking about a Mustang. Same thing with the Embraer. I knew some local pilots were buying uh, a Phenom in partnership. And so in that case, I sort of took a risk and, and, you know, speculatively went and bought my own phenom type rating at that point just to wow. pos- position myself as a mentor since I knew there was going to be more than one pilot needing mentoring. And that, that paid off uh, very well. I did the same thing with the phenom 300. You know, when I knew that um, there were some people who needed it, I went out and financed, <laughs> you know, I think I actually just made my last payment last <laughs> year on my phenom 300 type rating. So, yeah. Wow. You know, so it's a combination of right time, right place, and then occasionally taking a, a calculated risk and, and making an investment in yourself. Yeah. Hmm. And a supportive uh, family to uh, to make those sorts of risks, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Although, you know, it's funny, I, you know, flying for the regional airline, at the time I left, I was teaching a lot in the Cirrus. And, uh, you know, I, I understand it's gotten a little bit better now. The regional airline pay has improved, but I, I was making more in a day uh, teaching in the Cirrus than I would in a four day trip flying an Embraer regional jet. So that, from a financial point of view and security, it was a no brainer to leave the airlines and strike out on my own. Yeah. So what, what about now? I mean, you, I guess still some word of mouth, I'm sure, uh, to bring in new clients. And so when you first sit down with somebody, uh, like you said, you try and find out what their profile is. And so you make a plan and I guess what, what is the, what's, you know, if somebody needs that, let's say the minimum number of hours, I mean, they're going to do it over a couple of weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months. And so how, what's a day like? I mean, are you, are you trying to hammer that day after day or is it kind of on their schedule and you meet them somewhere in the country and then work on a specific profile or what's that life like? Sure. Well, at this point in my career, I'm tending to work with local clients more. It is all really word of mouth for me. And I have a, a decent clientele. Uh, I'm up in the Boston area, in the area. So I'm fortunate that I'm not having to airline around as much to meet a client as I used to. I still spend a lot of time on airlines, but that's usually if I'm flying with someone and they're staying for a week, you know, then I'll come home. Um, so I'm tending to work with, with local clients. And again, it's a mix. You know, uh, uh, Post-COVID, obviously, I haven't been flying as much as I was before, but, you know, right before COVID started shutting things down in March, you know, so February of 
2020, you know, would be kind of a typical month for me uh, off the top of my head. I think I did a trip from Boston out to San Diego, spent a couple days out there. This was with the new uh, Phenom owner who had some meetings out there. So I spent a couple nights, flew back. You know, those coast to coast trips are great when people can do them. Really, really uh, good experience. And then I did a, a, a series of three uh, recurrent training events, three pilots uh, in a different Phenom, Phenom 100 in that case. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing a mix of the more ad hoc, really when people think of as mentoring, you know, so a pilot needs to go somewhere and, and you're doing this kind of on the job experience, uh, on the job training, so to speak, versus a more programmed, okay, we're meeting at the airport on Monday, we're going to fly all day, we're going to go, you know, have done eight approaches by the end of the day, single engine go arounds, right? So it's, it's a mix of the two. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Neil, thank you so much for taking the time. And it's a fascinating world that a lot of us will never see, unfortunately, and, and know nothing about. So it's, it's really great to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. David, this, this is amazing to me, the stuff that we take for granted in aviation. I mean, Neil works on a daily basis with people who have spent millions of dollars to fly their own jets, and he has to. So this person is obviously highly wealthy, you know, probably used to running a business and everything else, and he's got to sit next to them and teach them from, well, not from zero, because they go to sim training in many cases, but they're, they're through sim training. He's got to teach them how to actually, in the real world, operate these aircraft, highly complex, fast, you know. Just a, an amazing life and a really interesting guy. And I think it would be a lot of fun too, but you're right. He's got to have that the right kind of personality to massage these folks and make sure they're doing the right thing. You know, they, they need to um, follow the procedures and, and um, make sure that they're a safe pilot. And a lot of it is obviously for insurance reasons as well. So being a safe pilot, getting a great mentor, what a cool job. I'd love to do that myself. Yeah. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be there for you. And thanks again to our over 1 million downloads since we started Hangar Talk, Ian. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.